Would you all pray with me? Lord, we're grateful that you gather us by your spirit and your word and that you send us out rejoicing in your name. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, so, several years ago, I was living in Toronto and uh, Caroline, my wife and I were living in a really small apartment and my dad wanted to come up and visit and uh, of course we said sure, uh, but the apartment was really too small to host him so I kind of looked around online and I found advertised a hotel that was a pretty reasonable price. It seemed like a, a good fit and plenty comfortable. So we, I got him to book the place to, to stay there and um, seemed like it would be great, but there was one problem. Um, the hotel had not been built yet. And so at 9 p.m. Uh, in February in Canada, which meant it was like 8 degrees, uh, my dad and I were wandering around the construction site uh, trying to find who was in charge of the hotel when I finally stumbled across this coterie of Russian construction workers who, of course, spoke no English. Uh, and I finally convinced them, I told, communicated to them that uh, my dad had booked a, a hotel room here. And, uh, of course, they just burst into laughter and smokers' coughs. <laughs> um, because, it, again, it was February, and his, there were no walls on the building in which he had booked a room. And so you see, in our world, very often, the, the things that are advertised to us, the things that are promised, the things that are sold to us, are truly not like they seem. This is common knowledge to many of us. Uh, even the advertising world has caught on this. You probably note the sort of tongue-in-cheek commercials that we see so often now, even the, the folks who are interested in drawing our hearts to buy things, they know that we are skeptical these days. And of course, this is big, big business. Attention, they say, is one of the great commodities of our current moment. And so, of course, they realize that as we scroll through our phones, there is immense power in coercing us into buying and selecting this or that. But we all know we all know that it's never as good as it seems. However, with Jesus Christ, it is exactly the opposite. It couldn't be more opposite, in fact. With Jesus Christ, not only is there more than meets the eye there, but it is better and better and better the whole way down. You simply cannot even hope in the sheer amount of goodness that he offers to us. He only gets better the more you get to know him. As many of you know, we're now well into the season of Epiphany. You can think of Epiphany as a day, a feast day, but you can also think of it as a season, the weeks that follow where we celebrate that visitation of the Magi, the wise men from the East who have come to visit Jesus. And it's really a season about celebrating the sort of self-evident character of Jesus. You know, the, the qualities about him that reveal who he is and draw us to him. It notes the way that he is precisely who we hoped he might be, and more. In short, you could say the weeks after Epiphany are a celebration of who Jesus is. And it's better than advertised. There was someone on our staff recently in a morning devotion, maybe you realize we, we meet as a staff every morning for a short period of devotion, and this member of our staff expressed with great candor a simple desire to love Jesus more. It's not a marvelous thing to hope for, but that we all hoped for that. And you see, that is precisely 
what Epiphany is for. It is a time to gaze into the beauty and the goodness and the unfathomable riches of who Jesus Christ is. And so if you pay attention to our readings for the next several weeks, you will see that they all reveal, they uncover some aspect of his person that can't make your heart but warm to him. So today we see two things. We see first that Jesus is the completion of Scripture. I'll say more of what that means in a minute. And we see also that he is the great restorer of our souls and our lives. So here's how the story goes. In Luke's account, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, his active uh, public ministry to the world. It says that he was full of the Spirit, and that after he had gone into the desert for a time of trial and temptation, a time of preparation, he went back to the region where he grew up, which was Galilee. And he began to teach in the synagogues, and crowds were, were drawn to him. Then it says that he went to his actual hometown. Even more, he went to his home synagogue. And there he did something that would have been very normal on a Sabbath day. He went in front of the congregation to publicly read the scriptures. It's something, of course, that we still do today. And he was given a scroll from Isaiah, but he chose to read from chapter 61. And it says that as he read it, people were transfixed. They, they, they couldn't turn away from him. And so even after he finished, he rolls up the scroll. It says this in detail. It handed it back to the attendant. He went to go sit down, and people were still staring. I imagine Jesus noticed this awkward tension. So I imagine he rose up again. And then he said those shocking words. He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Again, I'll note the content of that passage that he references in a minute. But the word fulfilled here is very, very important. It can be translated in a host of ways. It's one of those, you hear pastors talk about this all the time, but there are words in these biblical languages that have a kind of illustrious, multifaceted meaning. This is one of those words. Fulfilled can be translated as, as completed or accomplished or made most full. It means that something has been achieved. And so what Jesus is saying here is that Scripture is is, uh, completed. Scripture is accomplished. Scripture finds its permanent end in him. Now, of course, that's not something that a Jewish person would typically say in front of a congregation in a synagogue. Because to talk about the fulfillment of Scripture, of God's purposes made known in his word, would be a prophetic work. Jesus is, of course, doing that, but he's doing that not simply as a prophet who would say, so saith the Lord. He simply says, the scriptures here in Isaiah are about me. In other words, he's speaking as if he is the authority over scripture itself. He's speaking as if he is God. Elsewhere, of course, you'll remember Jesus says even more incredible things like this, such at the end of the Gospel of John, maybe you remember, the resurrected Jesus confronts his disciples on the road to Emmaus, do you remember that? And he tells them, they don't recognize him, but he tells them that all of the scriptures, all of it, is all about him. Scripture is made complete in Jesus. 
And for you and me, that actually has some practical ramifications. First, what it means for you and me is this. If you ever want to know what Scripture is about, if you're ever confused by it, or if you're ever in an argument about it, it's easy to argue over Scripture. You can know that somehow and in some way, it is about Jesus Christ. In some way, even if you don't understand how it is so, Jesus is saying, this makes this a metaphysical claim, not merely a literary one. Jesus is saying that all of these words, all of these stories, all of these poems, they cohere in the person of Jesus Christ. It could be Leviticus or Joshua or the Psalms or the Promised Land or the Tabernacle, the ministry of Elijah. All of it, he says, is somehow about me. Of course, that doesn't mean that it can't be about other things as well. It can be about violence or hope or any manner of things that you'd hear anyone talk about. But it means that first and foremost, it all makes sense in Jesus. And so if you ever want to know what a passage is about, turn to Jesus. See the way it might prompt you to some aspect of his person and his mission, and I promise you, you will never go wrong. Now, the other part of this is that it means that all of Scripture does make sense in him. And so this is a proposition of real hope for you and for me. It means if ever you doubt the truths of the Christian faith, turn to the way Scripture all hangs together. It coheres, again, it makes sense as one unified body. I've had many nights where I've doubted the truths of Christianity, and one of the things that draws me back is the impossible coherence of this book. Remember that. Now, here's the other thing that this means for our purposes today, is that Jesus, in claiming to be distinctly one and of, a, of one purpose with the author of Isaiah, the God of the Old Testament, what it means is that he is saying he is somehow uh, one with the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's saying that the God of Exodus, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, The God of Jacob is somehow one with him. And what that means again for us is that while we might be tempted to think simply of Jesus as meek and mild, we must also note that there are qualities about him that are shocking and beyond our comprehension. Because he is both Jesus, meek and mild, and he is also the Lion of Judah. Qualities about him are on display even in the Gospels. Of course, you remember when he overthrows the moneylenders' tables, when he rebukes the Pharisees. He is bold. He is the God of the Old Testament. And so you see, by claiming Isaiah, he is claiming to be both gentle and meek meek and lowly. And he is also claiming to be the judge. He's claiming to be the one who has ultimate authority, ultimate power, who can fix all of the things that you could never dream of fixing. And what that means for you and for me is that there is no circumstance, there's no area of hopelessness that is truly without hope for you and for me because we all have different ones. Some of you, when you are in a condition of hopelessness and despair, you want somebody who can come alongside you and encourage you. Jesus can do that. Some of you, you don't care about someone empathizing with you. You want someone to fix it. Jesus is that person for you as well. Here's a way to think about it. Some of you may remember several years ago there were uh, popular stories about the famous marathoner Dick Hoyt. You remember this man. He, he would run marathons in this sort of um, 
tricycle-like, uh, uh, it was a wheelchair, but turned into a tricycle with his son who was sitting up front. And there are these amazing pictures of Dick Hoyt, he's very strong, he's a handsome man, pushing his son uh, through all of these marathons. His son often had a sort of gentle smile on his face, and he did it again and again and again with his son. Just beautiful. There's even a statue of him, I believe. Now compare that story with this story. My family had this old friend from years ago. He was born without a hand. Because he was born that way, it was never really uh, a condition of anguish outside of the inconvenience until he entered into grade school. And then as he got more into grade school, he became embarrassed about the disfigurement. Furthermore, he was uh, left out. He couldn't do a, a lot of things that other little boys could. And so one day, his father came alongside him and knelt down. His father pulled his hand into his shirt sleeve. He tied up the end. And he said, I will do it with you. And he did it every day, again and again and again. You see, both of those are beautiful stories. And you see, both of those happen in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the one who can bring justice and might and glory. He is also the one who can empathize with our struggles. He is like the Father who takes the Son to do things he could never imagine. He is also like the Father who comes alongside and limits himself so that the Son feels less alone and unknown. He is a remarkable man, Jesus. He is one who knows our struggles, and he is one who can heal our afflictions. And so when Jesus says that he fulfills, that he accomplishes, that he completes Isaiah, he is saying that he is both the God of exile and punishment, which is what Isaiah is largely about, and he is also the one who would not so much as break a bruised reed in his effort to redeem your soul. So that brings us finally to these words of Isaiah. Again, with Jesus, there is more than meets the eye. And if you go back and read those words from Isaiah that he quotes, there is far more, there is far more goodness than he even lets on in this short verse that he gives in front of the synagogue. Here's what he says he will do for you. Remember, he is given the scroll, but he chooses the verses. He says, I will bring good news. He says, I will bind up the brokenhearted. He says, I will proclaim freedom to those who are captive. He says, I will beautiful, make beautiful those who mourn. He says that you will be established. He says he will rebuild. He says he will give the oil of gladness upon your forehead. He says he will give you the wealth of nations. He says finally that he will give you everlasting joy. Who doesn't want that? Now surely again there are some of you who are children of this age and you think there is no way. That could never be the case. But I'll remind you, this is the beginning of his ministry. And if you want to understand his promises at the beginning of his ministry, you also have to look at the end. And if you look at the end of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, you come to John chapter 14. And here is what he says to his disciples. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Why? Because I go to prepare a place for you. Here's what that means. It means when Jesus resurrects from the dead, which is what he does, 
It means that it is not simply proof that he is God. It certainly is proof of that, but it is proof of more. It means that all that he says he will do, he can do. It means all of the promises of Isaiah, all of the unfulfilled hopes that you and I have, all of the unsung questions that we still have ringing in our ears, he is the answer for all of them. Because he is the one who can resurrect from the dead, unlike any other person ever. So you see, when he resurrects, he is proof of God's power. When he dies, he is proof of his humanity. You see, in both of those, it coheres in Jesus Christ. Both of those make sense. When Jesus goes to the cross and dies a sinner's death, just like you and I would, he is showing us that he is like the father who binds up his arm into his sleeve and comes alongside the son and says, I will do it with you. And when he resurrects from the grave... He is like Dick Hoyt who pushes his son to go places he would never ever dream of going because he has the power to do it. Isn't he marvelous? He's both of those things at once. And you see his death and resurrection, both of those prove to us that the restoration and the freedom and the oil of gladness and the everlasting joy and all of the good news that he has promised to us can be ours. So friends, if you doubt today, if you are skeptical about the goodness of God or the goodness of the world even, I want you to remember the coherence of the scriptures and the promise given, the down payment paid, and the res- death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the one who can restore your souls. And this epiphany, I invite you to gaze into the sheer beauty of who our Savior is. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.